You don't have to be a machine learning engineer to help make the future a smarter place. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. So, Eric, in all of our time together, I think I've missed only a couple interviews, and this was one of them, which I'm bummed about because you went into uh, research territory and, uh, and, and talked to somebody about um, indexing. And I always like to know more about this space because it's not maybe directly linked to sort of takeaway investment advice, but it informs how ETFs are structured and how investors might need to think about the space overall. So joining us, um, joining you on this episode of Trillions was Martin Schmalz, who's a professor at the University of Oxford's Business School where he teaches finance and economics. He recently wrote a paper, co-wrote a paper, Index Funds, Asset Prices, and the Welfare of Investors. Why did you want to talk to him? Yeah, um, passive is growing. ETFs taking all this money. Index funds taking all this money. And people like to study them. Um, people have been commenting on the rise of passive and the worries. I, you know, it's a whole chapter in my Bogle book, Some Worry, and there's been all these worries. And um, this particular person I've met over Twitter, and we've uh, debated a little bit, nice guy, um, really smart. I think between the two of us, he brings up our average IQ about 15 points. As you can see from his credentials, he knows what he's doing. And he's studied in his latest paper the idea that index funds might even be too good for their own good because they're so good and cheap they're basically allowing more people to come into the market and that is going to decrease expected returns in the future which um is is to the it doesn't benefit anybody going forward it's sort of like bad for the common good and this is one of a couple other common good arguments um that have been made by academics so we also discuss common ownership which is another one which we'll go into I won't you know ruin it now but basically if you are an index fund or passive owner um you know what what is happening with your money? Like, what are the larger ripple effects and implications? Is there anything to worry about? Do we need public policy on this? And that's what we explored. And we covered a lot. You know, I know you weren't here, but we, I must have asked them 20 questions. We delved into it. And uh, we went into the weeds, the deep weeds. This is probably why you're needed on this show because <laughs> I, I don't think we would have got as deep. Maybe for this episode, it was a good thing, though, because we really nerded out. But I will say, he was real good about being short with his answers, so he doesn't go on and on. It's a, it's a nice back and forth about several of these sort of concerns over the rise of index funds and passive. I, I think you'll enjoy it, especially if you're anybody at all interested in how markets work. This time on Trillions, Martin Schmalz. All right, so Martin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. We, we've never met in person. Uh, we've interacted on Twitter here and there, and I've gotten to know you a bit over the years through digitally, I guess. So it's nice to have you on and finally meet you. And I think we have the, you know, pretty nice civil debates on this, as I do with many other people. This concept of passive is is a is a concept that 
is studied because it's getting bigger and bigger. As you know, I tend to write off most of the worries. A lot of them come from active managers. You're an academic, so I think that gives you some objectivity that I I would give you a little more attention. There's a couple issues we're going to bring up. Let's go over your latest paper, though. Just give me the, what's it called? Like, what is this sort of thesis called? And what is it? What is the worry here that you're looking at? Um, So the paper is called um, Index Funds, Asset Prices, and the Welfare of Investors. And I wouldn't say that we're looking at a particular worry. We didn't start with a worry. We started with a question. And the question is simply how indexing, textbook indexing, you know, holding the market portfolio um, would affect the level of asset prices and how that would affect investor welfare. So that's what we started out with. And I suppose one could say that it leads to a worry. I would just call it a result, um, which is that it raises asset prices, the level of asset prices, and thereby reduces expected returns. That's the baseline of the finding. So Matt Levine, who's got away with words, who many people know writes for Bloomberg Opinion, here's how he put it. An index fund is a good way to hold stocks. It has low fees and offers diversification. Therefore, if index funds are easy and cheap, more people will invest in the stock market than if there were no index funds. This will push up the price of stocks, pushing down their expected returns, and therefore index funds are bad for investors. So that is exactly accurate. Um, I think pretty much every step of the way here should be obvious and mostly unarguable, except the last perhaps. The last one at least was not obvious to me. And it's still not 100% obvious to me. That is just what the computer simulations um, spit out. So bad for investors in this case means reducing welfare of investors. That's the welfare part in the title. So I totally agree with the characterization of Matt Levine that he put out Well, let let me ask you this then. Is is this really an index fund issue? Mutual funds were introduced 100 years ago. You could argue they brought in a ton of investors. And up until the late 90s, 98, 99% of active mutual fund asset or mutual fund assets was in active funds. So was that a similar issue then? Like why is it index funds and not mutual funds in general? So this is 100% fair what you're asking here and um there's no distinction in the model between an active fund or a um an index fund. In fact there are no active funds in the model. The only thing that matters is whether it has become cheaper to hold a diversified uh, portfolio. And that's obviously what index funds do and much more successfully than active funds, which is you know, why I hold index funds. So if active funds had similarly brought down the cost of holding a diversified portfolio, um, they would also raise um, um, asset prices and thereby reduce returns. And um, as a result, uh, reduce investment welfare. So in some ways, it's really about financialization um, than uh, um, about index funds. I think that's fair. So I guess we we already concluded that it's uh, not about passive versus active as much as much of the debate about uh, passive investing really is. So uh, a natural reaction to this would be, well, some people argue not enough people are invested. Like here in America, only 50% of the population has any exposure to stocks and bonds, right? And this is added to the wealth gap because, you know, you're getting that equity market premium and, and the income from bonds. And so as um, someone who replied to me on Twitter at Economic, he said this, why is it better for 25% of people to be investors and receive 12% return than for 50% of people to be investors and receive 8% return? I would almost go further and say, well, what about 100% investors? Like, I guess your thesis almost seems like you're 
rooting for only some people to be invested? <laughs> that's, that's, a really, that's a brilliant question. This is really, really good. Where do we start? So first of all, it is true that without cheap index funds, you would mostly get the very rich and mo least risk-averse people to hold the equities. And they would get them for cheap, right? Because the returns are high because nobody else is buying them. And indeed, that would lead to a widening of wealth inequality. And that is true in the model as well. And as you make holding a diversified portfolio cheaper, say, by the introduction of an index fund, say, um, more people invest. And you're exactly right that uh, this actually reduces the um, difference between the expected wealth of the very rich and the middle class. It reduces wealth inequality. So what I thought the intuition was going to be of this model is that the very rich get harmed by the introduction of index funds, but the middle class and, you know, the poor would actually benefit. But it just turns out that this is not the case. It just turns out that the middle class had held a much smaller fraction of stocks to start with. They also get hurt and get hurt enough by the reduction in expected returns that on net, they don't actually benefit. And that's a surprising part of the result. I'm not sure I like it, but that's what the math says. Are you sort of saying that index funds or mutual funds in general, especially as they get cheaper and cheaper, which again, I just wrote a book about this called The Bogle Effect. I do think that yep. high cost to low cost is the real trend because in you know mutual funds to ETFs, passive to active, there's a lot of gray area there, but high cost to low cost, which I think I give Vanguard and Bogle a lot of credit for ushering that in, is like everywhere. And clearly the lower thing, cost things get, the more people will use them. I totally agree. I guess my question is, are, are you sort of saying that the cheaper and easier that things get in, or access points, the people who come in later, like in a Ponzi scheme, are going to get the worse returns than the rich people who were already in? Here, I understand where your intuition, intuition comes from, but it's not exactly what the model says. So first of all, the model is static. So there's no such thing as early investors and late investors. There's just a comparison bit between if today... You asked investors or you measured whether they would be better off um, without index funds compared to index funds costing zero. The answer would be yes, they would be better off. Okay, So it's a comparison within time. It's not a comparison over um, time. So there's no Ponzi scheme here in the sense of a bubble building. It's just a boring statement about the level of asset prices uh, being higher. So I think what, what I should explain, though, is... What, what exactly I mean by investors being better off um, without index funds or that index funds harm investor welfare. So let me be very clear. For every individual who learns about index funds and ditches holding individual stocks and or active expensive funds and buys cheap index funds, that's good for them. There's no question about it. That's, uh, we, we explained that very clearly in the paper. It's a very different statement to say investors overall as a group would they be better off? And the entire distribution of investors, would they be better off if no index funds were around? So this is like a tragedy of the commons problem, right? So where you have, you have a common resource um, that gets depleted, I don't know, whatever, fish, Atlantic salmon, or I don't know what, like not farm-raised salmon. And um, if left to its own devices, um, individual fishermen will buy big, sh big, uh, big ships and deplete the resource. And it'd all be better off if there were restrictions on the size of ships or the size of the fleet. And it's similar in this case. I'm not saying it's stupid for an individual to buy index funds. Um, I preach um, since decades and I live 
what I preach by buying index funds myself. But that doesn't mean that overall it's good for investors that they're around. That is really interesting. And I'm glad you admitted that because that was going to be one of my questions. I have found a lot of times you you get a lot of attention. If you say indexing and passive is going to be a bubble or it's a worry, the press will cover you. It's just like any other worry. People who worry get a lot of press coverage. So, But when you, at, when you actually ask them, what do you hold? They'll say index funds. And I'm like, well, then you're part of the problem. or Because here's my big question is, let's just say people listening or, or, or I agree with this premise and we all kind of come to the conclusion that index funds probably should be somehow curbed. Nobody that holds index funds, I, I can pretty much say, or 99% of them is willing to take one for the team and jump over to a 1995 80 basis points blend active mutual fund for their kids' education. They want that money for them. So I think part of the issue is, and this is, I'd like to get your take on this. When Vanguard came out in the 70s and they started lowering fees over the next 45 years, active mutual funds didn't. They didn't share any economies of scale. And when the world kind of turned and the internet really spread information and Vanguard got below 10 basis points, man, that caused this frenzy of money to move over to indexing. And it was like Active was so far behind at that point. They they just missed it completely and got disrupted by Vanguard big time. And so what you're, I think, experiencing here is just an industry that that failed to see what was coming and recognize an opportunity. But we are seeing Active lower their fees. So as Active gets cheaper in ETFs last year, they took in 14% of the flows, but it all went to pretty low cost Active. So I think the the Bogle effect or Vanguard effect is actually one that could help solve this because Active gets cheaper and more appealing because a lot of people are fans of Active, just not the costs. And so as it gets lower, you might find a little more balance. What do you say about that? Like just sort of letting the market figure this out. Well, so I agree with um, basically everything you said in that Vanguard is a cost leader, a price leader, is responsible for the depression of fees. And every single investor is happy about that, right? Because every single investor has to has to pay these fees. Now, if it leads to active funds also becoming cheaper, well, that leads to more stock market participation. And as we discussed a few minutes ago, of course, that's desirable on many levels because it's going to reduce wealth inequality, right? But it will not solve the problem of the asset prices being high and the returns being low because it doesn't lead to more companies producing higher profits. For, for shareholders, it's just a greater shareholder base sharing these profits. And again, um, if, you're, if you just want to reduce wealth inequality, I'm all with you. And that's what the model indeed uh, predicts, that uh, index funds help reduce wealth inequality, unexpected wealth. But every single one of the investors is still worse off. They'd be better off with the, with the um, 80 basis point mutual fund from the, the 1980s in terms of their risk return trade-off compared to everybody else, right? So the, the resolution of the apparent paradox is, yes, nobody is willing to give up their 0% index fund for an 80 basis point active fund, except if everybody else would do it too. And that's the statement, right? So it is not about individuals are being irrational. It is about investors as a group are harming each other by driving up the asset prices. But they're acting out of their self-interest though, which that's, exactly. It has Everybody to, acts rationally. But it, it has to be that way. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. 
Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So this expected return, right, is that also just part of the Fed, right? The Fed and central banks around the world kept rates very low, did QE. Asset prices lifted probably beyond what valuations, uh, you know, what uh, earnings would suggest and it created a little bit of a Fed bubble. A lot of people thought this was the passive bubble. I said, no, it's a Fed bubble. And they associated the rise of the last 15 years with all the index funds. But now that bubble's broken. The Fed is hiking for the past year and a half. People still buying index funds, but the market's going down. Clearly, index funds were not enough to wag the dog or anything. And stocks are all over the place. There's plenty of dispersion. So I think the hiking sort of showed that the market's acting pretty much as it does. But I guess my bigger point to you is, is the expected return being low really more of a function of the Fed and their policy over the past 15 years rather than just the rise of index funds? Yeah, probably, yes. So uh, the paper does not have the ambition to try and explain the reasons for declining the expected returns or argue uh, that this is primarily driven, driven by index funds. The, the uh, ambition is really just to understand what the effect of index funds on asset prices is and I think probably also shift our thinking on how we think about certain um, policy trade-offs, such as, you know, uh, people thinking that indexing necessarily benefits investors, but then there might be side effects. And uh, maybe to rein in the side effects, we would have to harm investors. And this is how the trade-off in the policy debate gets, um, gets characterized. And what this uh, paper shows, um, what the math shows is just that this is probably not the right way of thinking about it, because it's less than perfectly obvious that cheap diversification even benefits investors as a group. Of course, it benefits every individual investor, but it's not clear that it benefits them as a group. So one thing I think that you're talking about and that I see in the flows and I want to get your take on is it seems like we're going to move into this new world where passive takes up the the core of most portfolios. And then people are going to look for something that's very, very different than passive to sort of decorate with, almost like adding a little hot sauce in an otherwise boring meal. This is the lane that like Kathy Wood lives in and ARK, even crypto. 
Um, and I think active managers over time are either going to have to get cheap or shiny. They're going to have to be really producing some high returns to A, attract investors' attention, and B, get used as a complement. And so could you argue that over time, that active slice will start to produce some really big winners? And you will see some money go to those more active active managers. And the net result will be uh, a rooting out of the bad managers, giving money to the good ones, um, and you still will have active setting prices. Is there anything wrong with that world? I, I don't see that there's anything particularly wrong with that world. No, I think that's that's probably a reasonable prediction. But I, I would have to admit that I have not done a whole lot of re- research on how asset prices get set when active and passive managers coexist. I find that the distinction, I think you alluded to it, I find that distinction not super useful these days, whereas you know it qualifies as a passive fund to follow an index that is a bespoke index just designed to follow a particular portfolio. Yeah, and I th- so when when I say passive, I really mean you know market level indexing, like in the textbook, which is yeah. very different from what passive means in in the real world these days. But just to be clear, I think what is happening because the S and P isn't even passive. I mean, there, it's run by a committee. Yep. Um, there's rules, and then you get to other indexes like the Russell 1000 is a little different. I mean, I think really your point is more about just people in funds. Rather than, you know, people buying funds today, holding them because they're cheap and good, rather than passive and active. Um, yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, very much. A true benchmark would be you hold it, a market value weighted portfolio of all the world's risky assets, right? And we, I think we can all agree that the S&P 500 is not that. Not even U.S. equities is that, right? So in theory, you'd have to have exposure to Chinese real estate or I don't know what, right? So this is true passive in the textbook. And anything that's labeled passive these days uh, is very far removed from that. Yeah. So for, for that reason alone, I don't think a lot of the headline discussion and the public discussion about passive versus active makes a whole lot of sense. Because look, if I build a portfolio of passive funds, but um, uh, every of these passive funds contains one stock, then this is literally the same thing as active investing. So I don't think that, uh, that these labels um, are as meaningful as they perhaps used to be 15 years ago. I agree. Um, there's just too much gray area. I still use it because you have to communicate quickly sometimes, but I That's fair. totally That's agree. Fair, huh? <laughs> That's why, I again, I go back to our uh, phrase, the great cost migration. Most of this is just high cost to low cost. What makes yeah, pass- If passive fair. was 90 basis points, it would be fringe at best. Um, it's because it's free. <laughs> That's why it's a big deal. Um, let's, let's move to, to what should be done here. I mean, is there any real solution here or is it just hey, there's more people invested. The Fed lowered rates for 15 years. It created, it created a little bit of a, of a bubble. And now, look, returns are going to be low for a while because of the, you know, sort of a return to the mean. Like you can't escape the mean. So you're going to have low returns. Is that generally the take or is there a way to solve this? So I don't think that there is immediate policy implications from this paper, but rather that we should think of it as a stepping stone to, uh, towards thinking more accurately about uh, what uh, other policy trade-offs should be about. So, um, you know, I uh, did a bunch of research on how diversified ownership of firms um, might affect competition. And these policy trade-offs look completely different um, once you endogenize asset prices. So what I mean by that is once you take into account the effect of diversified ownership on asset prices, then if you basically ignored that link. So I don't think the paper itself has a problem that needs to be solved. Um, and therefore no policy implications. But I think it informs 
um, how we should think about other um, side effects that people have debated in passive. So let's talk about one of those which you wrote about and I covered in my book as well, which is called common ownership, which is a very communist-sounding communist term. <laughs> it's, uh, huh, basically, it I'll summarize it. You correct me um, or clean, clean it up at all. Okay, so common ownership. What this says is that, like, hey, if, if uh, index funds own, say, all of the airlines or they own all the car makers – there's a vested interest or a motivation for those, all those car companies to raise prices because if you own them all, there's no reason to care about who wins or loses. You want them all just to have higher prices. And that's the danger of having only a few firms, especially diversified index funds, own, say, 25 30% of each stock. Is that about right? That is about right. This is not, this is not terribly wrong, but... Let me point out two two things that we could gain an even more nuanced understanding about. Then perhaps I'll also offer you my story of what I think is going on. So the first part is about index funds. The research I did does not single out index funds at all, has really nothing to do with index funds. So we call it common ownership. But what we mean by that is simply a measure of the extent to which um, the, the largest and most influential investors of one firm also hold the competition whether that's index funds or whether it's Bill Gates' family office or whether it's Berkshire Hathaway, um, we don't make a distinction in that paper about that, right? And empirically, uh, I'm sure the listeners of this podcast um, have noticed that Warren Buffett was one of the largest or actually the largest shareholder of a whole bunch of airlines um, until the pandemic hit. Um, and he's clearly not an index funds, right? So that that is the first I see. Uh, piece of nuance that it's really not about index funds at all, but the public commentary has very much been about it. And the, and the second nuance is about whether the car makers or airlines or whatnot have an incentive to raise prices once they figure out that their investors are really the same as the investors of the competition, as opposed to whether the managers simply get lazy. Whether the managers get lazy because they don't get monitored quite as actively as if, I don't know, Elon Musk was the largest shareholder of Jeff Bezos or, or Mark Zuckerberg, and therefore simply don't reduce costs quite as effectively as they otherwise would, right? And that's basically my story. My story is, look, um, I think, I would think that you and I probably agree that uh, the governance activities of Vanguard or BlackRock do differ in some ways of Elon Musk's governance activities, yes? Mm-hmm. And that those could ostensibly lead to differences in how aggressively management costs costs. That seems kind of obvious too. That's basically the entire story. All I'm saying is that um, if Vanguard doesn't do anything, I mean, they do something, but if they did absolutely nothing to hold management accountable, then probably this firm's costs would be higher. Well, in the firm's costs, if the firm's costs are higher, then it's going to set higher prices. So that's my story. My story is, look, index funds are probably not the, the best um, you know, activist investors uh, to hold management accountable. And you're going to see that in the firm's productivity and therefore in product prices. Okay. So it's not a giant conspiracy. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I agree. I agree. Because um, one quick anecdote here, and I, I just love this story. Yep. Eric Posner, who, did he? Did you work with Eric Posner of Chicago? I, I didn't work with him. I know him very you well, know. but we, we haven't worked together. Yeah, so he also wrote about this. And I um, went and when I was researching the Bogle book, I found a video of Jack Bogle in a little Princeton office with Burt Malkiel, Cliff Asnes, Andrew Lowe of MIT. There was like seven or eight heavyweight thinkers in there and Eric. And Jack just wanted to talk this out because it was getting some media attention. 
this was like six months before he passed away. That's how hardcore Vogel was and how passionate he was towards this stuff. But I, I watched the whole video. They didn't really come to any conclusion. I felt that the, the passive side won, but I, I might have been rooting for that side. I don't know. Um, but people should go just Google it. It's um, on the Princeton website, and uh, you can watch it and make up your own mind. But one of the things that was in there was this Gus Souter, who was CIO at the time when Vanguard was getting bigger and bigger. He was like, We've, we do not collude with BlackRock. We, we are, we're honestly trying to vote in a way that's you know for the benefit of the, of the company's long-term health. And if you look, they have corporate governance teams that pay attention to this stuff. And they do vote differently. Even BlackRock differs from Vanguard in certain votes. Um, we've studied it. I would I would agree it's not aggressive. It's not activist. So given that, you know, knowing they're voting to try to keep the company honest and do a good job, you, you still think this common ownership is a problem? Yeah. So um, again, I agree with everything you said. Um, so the most important part is that none of this, this theory that is being discussed here really has anything to do with collusion. Actually, explicitly not. Not collusion between firms, not collusion between different types of shareholders. Whenever an industry representative talks about uh, how they don't collude, that's a complete straw man. None of these theories is about collusion. Again, the theory is just about they are probably not as active owners as other investors okay. would be. So l- let me tell you a story, and I want to get your take on this. Two or three years ago, this small company called Tanger Outlets, I might even be pronouncing it wrong. That's how small this company was. There was a time when it had 55 or 60% of its shares owned by index funds and ETFs. It's a long story, but this dividend fund owned like 25% because the uh, stock was going down and it kicked out a big dividend, but Active was selling off the stock, but Passive liked the yield. So Passive ended up buying it from Active over like two years and all of a sudden Passive owned 60%. I called the IR woman and I and I asked her, you know, what what... What do you think of this? Like, is this? Um, uh, are you, and she goes, I don't think of it at all. I said, I, she goes, I will say the, the passive owners are a little less engaged, but we're trying to like make payrolls. Like, we're, we're trying to make money here. We're not really, we don't really care who owns us. We are, we have bigger fish to fry. So, isn't it true that just business and capitalism also just kind of solves this and we don't have to worry about it that much? Have you talked to a Twitter employee lately? I mean, it doesn't, it strikes me that the change in ownership that came with Elon Musk buying a large stake in the firm and putting a huge amount of pressure on that thing becoming profitable rather changed the cost-cutting incentives um, of the CEO or of the firm, no? So I'm not saying Vanguard doesn't do anything. I'm saying they do less, right? And perhaps a, a better comparison is um, Berkshire Hathaway, right? So let's think of Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett occasionally buys firms and gets engaged in governance, no? So we all immediately think of Coca-Cola, presumably, or American Express, right? So Warren Buffett occasionally would put himself on the board. Now let's take the other situation. Warren Buffett buys huge stakes in the three or four largest airlines in the US. Did he put himself on the board as well? And the answer is no, right? So he did not put himself on the board there. He gets less actively engaged um, with companies where he also buys the competition. And that's exactly what economic theory would predict. You simply don't have an incentive to engage strongly with one company if part of the one company's success comes at the expense of another company that you own as well. So my point is, well, there's a reason Vanguard and BlackRock have governance teams, but the governance teams are nowhere close to, um, you know, the intensity of a Bill Ackman or, you know, any type of activist investor who's the alternative largest shareholder of the firm. 
So yeah, they do something, but is it good enough? Well, I mean, it's less, right? And if management is held to, to account less actively, um, then the costs are going to be higher and the price is going to be higher. So that's it. It's a very boring story in some ways. You know, it has nothing to do with collusion. It has nothing to do with evil motives. It just has something to do with incentives to engage in corporate governance and, you know, costs being a little higher when the shareholders basically let management uh, roam free. So with that said, you know, Vanguard and BlackRock and um, Schwab have all announced initial pilot programs to decentralize the share voting so that it's not so centralized with just them. Now, I would say that the individual voters, like the 30 million Vanguard and voters, many may just opt to have Vanguard do it, but right. many may opt to have a third party do it. Schwab is looking at polling just to get their where their head is at and then vote that way because I don't think an individual investor wants to deal with all of these proxy votes. It's really boring and time-consuming, and most of them are not really consequential. Um, do you think that decentralized trend could help this at all? I think you just said it, right? Um, so, so first of all, it's, a, it's an interesting question. It's a very interesting question. But if the problem is that Vanguard's governance team, with the clout of all these assets and the associated votes, if they don't use that very effectively because they don't have incentives, and now you give it to shareholders that are equally diversified but have an even lower incentive and less expertise to be engaged, it's not clear that this is going to help the problem, right? So um, I, I'm doubtful that this would be a solution to the problem. But and let's go to the problem one more time. Um, I, I I'm a sniff test guy, I, you know, and I think that matters. I haven't really seen anything that I can touch or feel uh, that has been a byproduct of this concern. Like it seems like competition's alive. Well, I haven't seen one industry where prices just got crazy. I mean, I know inflation went up recently, but that was largely a function of a you know the lockdown and the Fed and whatnot. So have you seen anything specific that is a direct result of this? Or is it just a little too hard to measure or a little too early to measure? Yeah, so look, that's a, that's a crux. That theory that I'm pronouncing here, uh, that's been around for decades. It was actually a Princeton guy as well, a, Prince, uh, a Princeton graduate who came up with that in his first job at, at MIT. Um, and if you try to test that using the time series of our pr overall price levels higher or lower, you wouldn't get very far, right? Because there's all these alternative explanations. But the claim to fame of that first uh, paper is that we study differences in particular routes. So say, you know, some airlines become more owned by, say, the Blackrocks and Vanguards and uh, perhaps the Berkshire Hathaways um, over time. So they become more commonly owned. Uh, and in the theory, that would make those and the routes where they compete set higher prices, whereas other airlines don't, right? So there's Richard Branson owning uh, Virgin America and being behind the CEO and cost cutting and going to the media all the time, promoting the products and so forth, right? And the, the test, um, the proof of the pudding of the theory here was in seeing how, say, the Virgin Americas compete with the Deltas and Uniteds of this world. And what you see very clearly there is that the prices go up when the airlines become more commonly owned compared to price changes in routes where there's less common ownership and the common ownership does not go up. Yeah, but doesn't, so that is where the proof of the pudding is. Yeah, Doesn't the common ownership self-police itself? Because if you are a common owner of all the airlines, you're also a common owner of like, I don't know, all of the tech companies and all of the yeah. industrial companies. And if airline prices go up, then it's going to hurt business travel, which might just end up hurting a lot of the other sectors that you own. 
So doesn't higher prices ruin other things? Therefore, you would, as an as a index fund owner, not want that because you're you're looking after all the sectors, not just this one. Yeah, I think that's an argument that makes sense in in some cases more so than in others, right? So airlines, most of the tickets get sold to the in, to the end consumers and not to other businesses. Uh, but you could say, well, what about oil companies? A lot of the airlines' cost is oil. So what if you have covered ownership between the oil companies and the airline companies? And indeed, there's evidence that this leads to lower prices. So more common ownership between vertically related firms, so suppliers and customers, actually tends to lower prices, which is one more reason why it's really not about indexing, right? So the, the problem for competition is does not come from indexing, or at least nobody has shown that it does. The problem with competition comes from the same investors holding horizontal competitors. And what the overall effect on indexing or passive is on competition, nobody has even started to properly address that. And that's actually where, you know, that first paper we talked about comes in again. You know, when you look at the airlines alone and then just say, look, and the economy consists of a whole bunch of uh, industries, they become more commonly owned, let's fix the problem, let's prohibit indexing. Well, that does not take into account that there are vertically related firms. It does not take into account that, hey, asset prices might go up. And here's the thing that was missing from the first paper. When asset prices are up and expected returns are low, well, uh, that actually reduces the cost of capital of firms. And wouldn't that be something that potentially makes them expand output, right? And those are things that are simply not present in the economic theories um, of the day. And those are just direct limitations one has to acknowledge when debating these policy proposals. So on the common ownership, last question on this, um, is there yeah. a public policy? I know the first one you said there's really no policy recommendation. Would you have a policy recommendation on the common ownership issue? Is like maybe um, you can't own more than three or, or 30% of the industry? Or, I mean, would you be for instituting something like that, which would ultimately make index funds illegal? <laughs> so, so that's a good one, right? So um, there are policy proposals. I'm, I'm, I'm saying I uh, have not myself endorsed any or, or made any. But in the legal scholarship, uh, the journals are full in the last five uh, years of policy, of policy proposals that go from anywhere from, you know, let's just take all the voting rights away from index funds or uh, let's say we provide a safe haven for any investor who holds less than 1% of all the firm's um, and otherwise, you know, the antitrust laws apply. So other people have made these proposals, and I haven't. And basically, for the reasons that I just that, that I just mentioned, um, there's a whole bunch of open questions uh, that I think have to be addressed. But another reason is there's much more low-hanging fruit. Why why do we focus on the Blackrocks and the Vanguards of this world? Why nobody takes any issue with Berkshire Hathaway buying 15 percent in uh, the competing airlines, and nobody raises an eyebrow? That's or, a good point. And, and this is a, that's a literal example. Uh, Bill Gates, family office, buying 30% stakes in the publicly traded waste management companies. Like, wh why do we debate whether Vanguard has an effect on passive, why we just tolerate that and not even scrutinize it? So I think the, the, there's much more low hanging fruit. And, and there's no, none of these concerns that we just mentioned about vertically integrated firms and equilibrium effects and all this good stuff. We don't have to debate that when it's about a particular relatively small investor basically deliberately buying shares in competitors, um, then I don't really understand why, why we're putting so much attention uh, on the big um, index funds. So I think there's lower hanging fruit for the policymakers than debate these structural proposals.
yeah, no, those are good points. Um, and I brought these worries up with Bogle in um, one of my interviews with him just before he passed away. And he addressed Eric Posner uh, specifically that, you know, you get these worries, all of a sudden they get into the New York Times and they get written about the wrong way, straw man, as you would say. And all of a sudden, you know, he specifically mentioned Elizabeth Warren, sees it as something she can run on um, because it's like her versus the big guys. And all of a sudden, bam, you've just ruined this golden goose for small investors, which is a cheap index fund. And that's the worry of the some worry articles. So, so look, I'm, I'm laughing because this is where the circle closes. And uh, that makes me a little happy, right? The policy trade-off, as you just illustrated, is being thought of as diversification is good for the small investors. But uh, if we intervened, then we would take that away from them. And that's what's so important about the first paper. The first paper, which says, wait, it's actually much less obvious than we thought whether cheap indexing is actually good for small investors. All right. So my point is, I think that first paper doesn't have policy implications on its own, but it does make you think differently about the policy trade-offs that are to be considered when it goes when we're talking about these other side effects, like the effects on competition. There's a lot of layers to this. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You own passive, right? This is where I really like, I just want to close with this. What What would you need to see to make you take one for the team and move over to a high cost or a higher cost active fund or something different with your money? Because I think that's sort of what other people would need to see. Because if you, who looks right at this closest, is still in index funds, it's going to take a whole lot more to convince anyone else to leave. <laughs> no, so, um, yeah, you're not going to get me to divest from passive 
until you make it expensive. No, so that's what regulation is for. Look, I'll tell you a story of little Martin being in the grocery store when I was, I don't know, seven years old. And my mom showed me how the, the, the flowers were uh, flown in from, I don't know, South America or Africa or I don't know where. And how that bad was that for the climate. And therefore, we should just shun that and not buy these products and so forth. Look, what I see is that despite these, effect, uh, these, these efforts by my mom um, to get people to not buy what is attractive to them, somehow they took over and flowers are still being grown and flown around the globe. Um, perhaps that's bad for the, for the climate, but it's not the job of individual consumers to fix that. That's the job of policymakers. So, you know, that's a broader point. But the, the entire structure of the problem that I'm talking about is that for individual investors, it is perfectly rational to keep buying passive funds. And that's what I do because, you know, I try to be a rational person most of the time. But that doesn't mean that it's good for, you know, societies. And that's what the role of the role of policymakers is, okay. which is why, you know, I see it so critically or with so much concern when politicians lean back and go like, look, let's just hand over world, world government to, you know, the big asset managers. Surely they care about the world just as much as, you know, people do. And uh, so I think that's just faulty logic. That is literally the role that politicians are supposed to play in an economic system and not the investors. So I don't think the investors are to blame, nor should they change anything uh, the the ball is in the court of the politicians here. Okay, so let's say the politicians said they, they reversed the Vanguard effect from 45 years and said index funds can exist, but they can be no cheaper than 90 basis points. How would you as an individual investor that hold index funds feels like what, what would your reaction to that be? I mean, look, I'm kind of rich, so I would probably still hold funds and make way higher returns. So I'd probably benefit from that policy. <laughs> that <laughs> And you're probably among that camp as well, right? So again, yeah, but, well, it's I, not that- I, I would feel bummed because I've looked at the numbers. If you pay even 1% more over 50 years of compounding, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars that go to the industry and not you. It adds yeah. up over time. And so even 90 basis points or 150, even 10 over enough time can be a lot of dollars and cents. And I think that's where if you're an individual investor who's looked at those charts, you'd be like, wow, what a bummer. Absolutely. So look, um, I, we, we're 100% on the same page on that. I just started um, a bunch of um, college savings accounts for my kids. And in Europe, you do not get access necessarily to these fantastically cheap index products. I got one for what, like 80 basis points from uh, some local uh, German bank. And it makes me amazingly upset. It's basically a ripoff. Um, and I'm very upset at that. I get even more upset when I think about uh, how many millions of German savers there are um, that are being ripped off without understanding uh, that it could be so much cheaper. We're totally on the same page about that. But the reason for that is because um, here is a few, um, you know, let's call it less sophisticated or more heavily regulated um, investors that don't have access to the cheap funds, but they still suffer from the lower expected returns. So this is where the, uh, that's where the crux comes in. Of course, everybody agrees that cheaper funds are better than more expensive funds at the same time. But if nobody else was able to invest um, at uh, such low costs and therefore asset prices would be lower, I think a lot of people would be happy. You know, it's the same thing about houses, right? So, I mean, go in the street and talk to a 25-year-old about whether they are happy or unhappy about high house prices. Look, I mean... It's, it's kind of obvious that we're unhappy about that, that we spend a greater fraction 
of our savings on assets that have a particular dollar return, if we have to pay more for it, we're clearly worse off, right? So if you told them, hey, let's um, institute a reform that makes housing prices lower, surely they would be happy about that, even though on the face of it, you can't immediately see it because you mainly think about the fee that you're paying, but you don't immediately understand that the equilibrium effect would be that the prices are lower and you, you get to benefit from higher returns. All right. Well, Martin, we have a fun way of closing the show. Um, we ask everybody on here, what is your favorite ETF ticker? It's VT. <laughs> the Vanguard Total <laughs> World, which is a... That's the Total what, World yeah. Stock Index Fund. That, Textbook indexing. That's what I do. Nice. That is as, that is as close <laughs> to passive as you can get with an ETF. So... That's it. Beautiful irony here. That, that That's your favorite Isn't ticker. It? it is. Good place to end. <laughs> anyway, Martin, thank you for joining us on Trillions. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weppershow. He's at Eric Balchunas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Bye. This podcast is made possible by Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.